Well, good morning, everyone. You'll notice that I'm a little bit shorter than Pastor Joel. Just a tad bit. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. I don't like it. But no, it's because you can laugh if you want. Normally, as you know, Joel teaches the class in the sanctuary, but uh, he, he, I guess, is uh, visiting for Thanksgiving. So he's not here. So he called and asked if I would run my class today out of the sanctuary. So we've got a combination of my class, uh, which is the uh, Bible overview, cover to cover. And so I'm going to continue along with that today. And some of you have not been in there, but you'll, uh, you'll be going along with us. So let's bow our head in prayer, and then we'll begin. Our great and most loving God, we come before you this morning, and we are so just very grateful and thankful, and especially in this season of Thanksgiving, not only for what you have given us in this country and bringing the pilgrims over here to practice religious freedom and to be Christians for Christianity's sake, for God's sake, for Jesus Christ. And thank you for the abundance you've given us because... We have blessed your people, Israel, and we have become the bedrock of, of the spread of Christianity throughout this world. And God, we are so grateful that you have given us the information and the knowledge that you want us to have through your scripture and through the Holy Spirit. Please help us to understand that as you have given us so much and that your scripture is not meant to be a mystery. It really isn't. There's more that you want us to know. And the more we study, the more we learn, the more we can know and be able bodies and useful tools and useful servants for you as, as you bring your kingdom to come soon. And we are thankful for this time together. May all that is said and done here be uh, from you through me, as, as I always say, in a neutral conduit. And we are grateful for the, for the information you want to share. And uh, please open our ears and uh, my speaking of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I guess you can open your Bibles up to Genesis. And we'll just start there. Um, my class, uh, for those of you who don't know, you've probably seen it in the bulletin, and I did announce it a few weeks ago, um, is called Cover to Cover, an Overview of the Entire Bible, and that's exactly what we're setting out to do. Those of you who have been in my classes before, I've taught the book of Daniel, the book of John, and the book of Revelation, you know that we go deep sometimes. Um, in those classes, I've gone fairly deep, and it takes a long time. It took about a year, a little over a year, to go through the book of Revelation, and just about the same time to go through Daniel. Well, we've got the whole Bible here to go through. <laughs> So I'm not going to take that much time, but we will go deep in certain areas. And so what I wanted to give you is just a review. Um, most of you, if not all of you, should know Genesis fairly well, at least the beginnings of the beginning, the story of the beginning, the story of God's creation, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of man falling in sin, and then the story going through the flood, and then through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then you know, coming out of Egypt and all of that. Well, right now we're at the point where we've reviewed the creation. And um, we've gone into detail, which I can't review here. But there was about 2,500 years before Scripture was ever written. And how did man and woman, how did human beings know about the plan of God? Well, we, as we taught in, my, in, in the class, and you can see, there's just a very small uh, but very pregnant with meaning Scripture that says God had put the stars and the heavens for signs and seasons. And if you were in my class, you know we've talked all about that. So the whole plan of God has been pre-written before history. And that's a very important thing to understand because there is no chance, there is no failure with God and everything has been preordained and predetermined. We just happen to be in the timeline that looks to us as linear. As we look out along it, we see the future, we are in the present, we see the past. But God looks down and sees the whole timeline from above. So not only did he create it all, but he's master of it all and he knows the end from the beginning. So now we're at the point where God has created human beings. It's a special creation, particular because we have been created in his image and in his likeness for a special purpose. But as you know, as the story rolls out, unfortunately, the human beings didn't do that great. 
And so that's where we, we pretty much are. Um, we are in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. There should have been no concept of, of death, but there was because of sin. But death is not just dying a physical death. Death is absolutely something worse, something absolutely worse. Death will be the eternal separation from God in a place called hell, which is not yet populated. But we're not going to get into all of that. To understand, that is just to set the context of when we, we're going to see here that Adam and Eve had sinned because they had taken uh, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God had to put them out of this Garden of Eden, which we're going to talk about a little bit and review some of the things we went over in my class last week. But suffice it to say that now they will be cast out of the Garden of Eden, but they're still physically alive. But for those who do not have Jesus Christ, we know that they will spend eternity in hell because the spirit in man was given eternity. So everybody does have eternal life. The only question is, is where will someone spend it? And that's, that's the death, that, that's the real death that God talks about. Because physical death would be way too easy. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. God here, out of his sheer love, as he declares war, just before where we're going to read, he declared war. Uh, or he will, he, he, well, he, he has declared war on Adam and Eve, and the serpent, by the way. And, uh, but just as quickly as he does that, he tells of his plan for salvation. Because God is a graceful God. It is part of his character. So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. Elohim, the triune God, like one of us. Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had, taken, uh, from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, which are a special class of angels, and uh, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now you'll also note that in Genesis chapter 3, we don't have to go there, but in verses 14 and 15, he also has the prophecy, the very first prophecy of Satan being defeated by Jesus Christ from the seed of the woman. And you know that in reality, in physical reality, who has the seed in the husband and wife relationship? The man. So think of that. It's because the seed of the woman, the seed is from God. And that's the first allusion to a virgin birth of Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the Amplified Bible, but we just read the Amplified Bible puts it this way, and I just want you to listen because sometimes I personally like the King James. I usually use the NIV because most people use that, but I would suggest that you use the Amplified Bible once in a while to compare Scripture because you will find that there'll be some more amplification uh, on certain things. So I, I use that in my class every once in a while. I use, I use a piece of the Amplified, or some portions of the Amplified Bible just for that purpose. So I'm going to read those same verses again, and I want to emphasize certain things. So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. For Adam also, uh, and for his wife, the Lord God made long coats or tunics of skin. Now think of that for a moment. You know that Adam and Eve, when they knew that they were naked, by the way, they were naked before they supposedly knew they were naked. We're going to talk about that just a little bit. But they, when they sinned, they knew they were naked. And what did they do? What did they do? They hid. And they also covered themselves. And they made themselves aprons or, or tunics or, or, or coverings of, of leaves. But that wasn't good enough because God had to cover them with something better. 
So he made them long coats. This is a full body covering, and that's the key I want you to remember. This is not just a loincloth, but you might see in some artwork of Adam and Eve. This is a long coat of skins, plural, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to know how, how to distinguish between good and evil and blessing and calamity. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. God drove out the man and he placed him at the east of the Garden of Eden, the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every which way or every way to keep and guard the way to the tree of life. When they took, when they reached out that hand and they, they were beguiled by the serpent and they took of the tree of the knowledge I'm sorry, the, yes, the tree of the knowledge of the good, good and evil. What did they do? It opened their eyes. Ever since that time, what has man been trying to do? Open their own eyes. We have been trying to be kings and priests of this creation that God has made. But you notice that they did not get the chance. God put them out before they were also able to grab from the tree of life. And that's what we're going to examine a little bit today. You'll notice also that there's a sentence cast. And if you're familiar with Jewish history, how many witnesses at least must be present? To, that's right, to, 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 to uh, present a matter before a judge, three. Why do you think that is? Because in this instance, the first judgment for human beings, it was God, the Father, God, the Son, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. That's where they get that from. So would you say that under the triune God that that witness is good enough for conviction of a crime? I would say that their testimony is probably good and that's where that came from. But again, there's this plan of restoration that even though these, these skins were made probably, and there's a lot of scholars who believe this, I personally believe this, that these skins were obviously from animals, the first sacrifice and were probably lambs, probably lambs. And that's where it came from. Even before no Moses, it was known that a sacrifice was, was, uh, was, had to be made. For Moses, when the law was given through Moses, it was, the lamb was for the Passover, so we know it was a lamb then. But where did that come from? Probably from here. Please turn to Genesis chapter 4. There will be one physical sacrifice, and we know who that is. But again, pre-planned from the beginning. There will be one physical sacrifice. And... Here's the point while you're turning to chapter 4. If you notice, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but we've talked about this in my class on Revelation, that there are instances in Scripture where, where it is written that angels, and sometimes Jesus Christ pre-incarnate appears, either angels or Jesus Christ will appear before certain people or prophets in, in Scripture for certain reasons. And you'll notice, if you haven't, you would notice that many times they're talked about being clothed in linen. Anybody know that? Anybody realize that? They're clothed in linen. Now that is, again, as I've always said and as you know, everything is written in Scripture for a purpose. There is not one idle word out of, in place or out of place. Nothing is idle in Scripture. We know that Adam and Eve all of a sudden saw that they were naked. Well, wait a minute. Weren't they naked when they were born? Why did they see they were naked? It's most probably because, and as you, as you study scripture, you'll learn the context here, is that there is a covering that they had in this special, close relationship as created by God. 
that no other creation, nor angel or animal, had with God. They were like this. But what separated that relationship was sin. It didn't totally sever the relationship. So they're a layer of abstraction now away from God or a layer or a degree of separation. Now, those of you that are in my class, I want you to remember this layer or degree of separation because as we go back into my classroom next week and the week after, we're going to talk about how God considers angels still a direct creation of God, but God considers man ever since the fall of man, before the restoration of men in Jesus Christ and resurrected in eternal life with Jesus Christ, man is now considered not an absolute direct creation by God. Now, I want you to understand, it's metaphoric in nature because God still created man. But there is this degree of separation that is severe. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because we're going to map some things in Genesis and throughout Scripture that are the result of this. We're also going to talk about God. When he talks about his angels, he still speaks of them as benahi Elohim in Hebrew which means direct creations of the triune God. He never speaks of man like that in Scripture. Never, since the fall. And the reason why we need to understand that is because there are passages in Scripture that you will see that says, and the sons of God did this, or the sons of God did that. Every time that appears in Scripture, it is referring to angels because it's Benahi Elohim. But I want you to understand it. But getting back to this clothing business, and it's important to understand that there was a covering, a special covering, probably because of God's Shekinah glory that was covering Adam and Eve, that when they were thrust out of the Garden of Eden, they didn't have that covering anymore. Before they were thrust out of the Garden of Eden, when they sinned, they knew that they were naked, not just physical nakedness, but because they are now separated from God, and that's what made them naked, because they didn't share in the glory of God. Now, as you're, as you're on Genesis 4, I want to review the Garden of Eden. My class, we went through this uh, last week, but I just want to review the Garden of Eden. It's a very important place. It is not just a metaphor. And it was a garden in Eden, okay? Garden of Eden. If you, if, you, if you want to, and you don't have to do it now, but just write the notes down because I don't have enough time. But Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 through 16, just briefly speak about Lucifer when he sinned and became Satan. And it says that before you sinned, I'm paraphrasing here, you walked, and it says this verbatim, in the Garden of Eden, before the throne of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Anybody familiar with that passage? You have to, what I want you to understand is that the Garden of Eden, by God's own words, was in heaven before his throne. Now, Satan sins. Satan's expelled from heaven. The garden is now closed for business, if you will, as it sat in Eden at before the throne in heaven. God now decides he's going to create human beings. He creates everything. He creates the physical universe. He puts human beings there. But where are the human beings? Before he even talks about it, he says there is a place called Eden, and in the midst of Eden is a garden. What happened in the Garden of Eden? By the way, before that, I'll just tell you that if you read Genesis, you'll notice that it says, and a river flowed from the garden, and it spread to four headwaters, and it names the headwaters. Basically, the metaphor here is, is that it spread throughout the earth. But what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They got expelled from the garden. 
They felt they were naked. They lost this first tight relationship with God. And they were expelled from this garden in Eden. And they were kept from going back. Wait a minute. Did we just say Satan did the same thing? Do you see the parallels here, what sin does? There is a dwelling place among God's throne that is holy, that is wonderful, that is beautiful. It is metaphorically a garden. It's also paved and covered with beautiful stones. Sin separates us and Satan and any of the angels who went with Satan from that. So now, now the Garden of Eden is closed in heaven. Guess where it appears next? Anybody? On earth. And we talk about that, we hear about that in Genesis. But now, where's the Garden of Eden today? Anybody know? Because if you look on a map of the Middle East, you can find where the Garden of Eden was because he tells you where it is. But it's not there anymore. Because it was closed. Again, when sin, when Adam and Eve did the same thing, they sinned, the Garden of Eden was closed. And it went, if you will, underground. Why am I telling you all this? Because in my class, we will go into detail where it's necessary, and then we will skim over the facts as necessary. Here's the point. If you, knowing this little bit of information today, start being, have your appetites wet for more understanding, starting in Genesis. If you understand Genesis, you will never, ever, ever have any issue with the sovereignty of God. You will never have any issue with his creation and him being separate from his creation. You will have understanding of God's character, his mind, his heart the beginnings and the inklings of how his plan of salvation was planned and is worked out, how he witnessed to human beings before even the first scribe wrote any scripture, you will also understand his plan for mankind and you will also understand that because Genesis is so complete and it's building the case for the rest of scripture, that you will never, ever have any problem with the rest of the Bible. It only becomes detailed after that. If you really want to become a deep believer, and you want to fall in love with God, study. Just don't read. Study Genesis. Because I'm telling you, with this detail, you'll see God's mind. You'll see how God operates. And you'll be more in, in tune with God's economy than the economy of be living in this world, in this life, just waiting to go to heaven and saving, helping to save, help save people along the way. That's all good. But I want you to get a depth. I want you to be closer to God because of it. And I know that's exactly what you can do by studying Genesis. And then the rest is detail. All right. So we have the Garden of Eden. Now, the Garden of Eden goes underground. And it's something special down there. Does anybody remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? Does anybody? Okay. Do you remember where that, basically the story is this. Lazarus is a poor man and the rich man is a rich man. Lazarus didn't really pay any attention. I mean, the rich man never really paid any attention to Lazarus. The poor guy was barely looking for crumbs at the, at the gate of this rich man. But guess what happens? The great equalizer affects them both, and that's death, and they die. Now, Jesus is the one telling this story, and I'm paraphrasing it here, but you probably know the story. Lazarus is in a place called Hades, and he's looking at now this, uh, I'm sorry, not Lazarus, the rich man's in a place called Hades, and he's able to see across a chasm. Who does he see? Anybody know? Lazarus and who else? Abraham. And he says, basically, help me, I'm in torment. And what is Lazarus? Or Actually, I think it's Abraham that says it. We can see you, but there's a vast chasm that separates us. You can't come to us, and we can't come to you. And he says that you'll never be able to cross it. 
And so he says, okay, then please send someone from the dead from where you are up as a witness. And what does he say? They have the prophets. They kill them. They will not believe them because it's already been done that way. Here's my point. What is that place called where Abraham and Lazarus are? Anybody know? Paradise. Or Abraham's bosom for the Jew. All those who believed in the prophecies of Messiah, all of those who believed before Messiah came, when they died, they went to paradise. What did Jesus say to the man on the cross beside him who wasn't railing against him? What did he say to him? Today, you will be with me in heaven? No. You will be with me in paradise. And that is not a choice on words. He went to paradise. When Jesus died and was resurrected, he went to paradise that's why there are some Christians who believe Jesus had to go to hell. He didn't go to hell. He went to paradise to take all of them to announce, not only in paradise, but across the chasm to those in Hades, his victory. He announced his victory, that those who were in Hades were now waiting for the great white throne judgment, and they're still there. But paradise was cleared, and they were all brought to heaven. So because of his sacrifice, when you and I die as Christians, we don't have to go to paradise. We go straight to heaven. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about here. So, paradise was the Garden of Eden. It's now closed and back up in heaven where it belongs, and it's waiting for its restoration on earth again, this time for eternity. I want you to follow this here. Let's keep your finger in chapter 4 of Genesis because we're going to get there in a moment. I'm building the case here. I'm going to read you, just listen now, from Revelation, the very last book in the Bible that details the things to come very shortly now. Revelation chapter 21, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 22, to Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. I'm reading this from the Amplified Bible, and I want you to keep this idea of this Garden of Eden, which is now in heaven, back where it kind of belongs, but where its final resting place is going to be back on earth. Revelation, you can turn there if you want, but we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 4 in a moment. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. I saw no temple in the city. Now, this is after the tribulation. This is after the millennium. This is when Jesus Christ is now making the headquarters for eternity on the earth, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God omnipotent himself and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun. This could be the eternal. Well, let me just preface it. I should say this. There's, the earth will always exist. The earth will not be destroyed. I hope you all realize that. Jerusalem and the Temple Mount will always be there, but there will be a new Jerusalem that will be hovering over it. Okay, now, to, to people who don't, haven't studied that yet, that sounds kind of strange, but basically that's what it is. So, anyway, so this city is synonymous of both, where God's headquarters are going to be, both on the earth and, and above it. And the city has no need of the sun nor the moon to give light to it, for the splendor and radiance, the glory, if you will, of God illuminate it, and the Lamb is its lamp. Shekinah glory. God's glory is so glorious that there is no need for anything called the sun or the moon. Just as in eternity past, eternity needed no stars, eternity needed no sun. Why? Because God and the Lamb, the Word at the time, were the reference standard and the glory and the light of it all. Now listen to this. The nations shall walk by its light, and the rulers and leaders of the earth shall bring into it their glory. And its gates shall never be closed by day, and there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory, the splendor, and the majesty, and the honor of the nations into it. 
But nothing that defiles or profanes it or is unwashed shall ever enter into it, nor who commits abomination, only of those who are clean uh, and written in, and recorded in the Lamb's book of life. In uh, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1. Then he showed me the river. What came out of Eden? A river. Then he showed me a river whose waters give life. Whose waters give life. Sparkling like crystal. Flowing out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the broadway of the city, also on either side of the river was what? Was what? The tree of life. Isn't that interesting? The tree of life has now been restored. If you remember, in Genesis, the Garden of Eden was in Eden, and out of it, were, and in it were the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was taken away. And the tree of life was reserved, lest anyone touch it before the time that it was allowed to be taken of. And there was a river that came out of the Garden of Eden. Well, now we see the restoration. And it says here that on either side of the river was the tree of life with its 12 varieties of fruit. How many apostles were there? You get the picture here? This is more than just poetry. This is wonderful, wonderful truth. Yielding each fruit, each, each month its fresh crop, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations and the restoration of the nations. And that's pretty much what I wanted to show you. So you see that sin has happened, that God has to deal with it. From Satan, he deals with it a certain way, but he makes restitution possible. And, and most, not possible, it will happen. Not for him, but the restoration of his holiness throughout his creation, throughout heaven, will be restored. But for human beings, they did not take of the tree of life until they are saved. And that is all alluding, all the prophecies, all alluding to Jesus Christ bought the way back for Eden to be planted for eternity is God's, in God's headquarters in his, in his eternal throne room. Now we can start in Genesis 4. So now in Genesis 4, it says here, Genesis 4 and verse 1, Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. This is the start of a new life for Adam and Eve because they don't have the old life anymore. They are separated from God, from before God's throne. They're one degree of separation, now a layer of abstraction. They are out of this garden that's before God's throne, and they are out, if you will, thrown and cast out into the outer courts. So they still have this relationship with God. By the way, anybody know the book of Job? Yes? What happens at the beginning book, in the beginning of the book of Job? How does all this stuff start with Job? Satan and God have a relationship, don't they? It's by a very large separation. They're not close anymore in, in the way they were when, God, when Satan was Lucifer. But there is still a relationship. And Satan still goes up to God and God says, Have you seen my servant Job? And you know the rest of the story. And Satan has to ask for permission to do the things he wanted to do because he's always trying to accuse God of doing the wrong thing by creating these minuscule, punky human beings... So, there is, so you see how God relates to sin and those who cause sin never really changes. 
And I want you to see that from the way he related and what he did to Satan by casting him out, but having this relationship with him, he did to human beings. In the Genesis 4 and verse 1, we see Adam and Eve starting their new life and doing what they were built to do, to raise children. They taught Cain and Abel. They taught them. There is a story that says that they were these pillars built by Seth. And one pillar was built of brick, and the other was of stone, and on those pillars were written the things they knew of, what, of God. And the reason why they wrote them was on one on one pillar and one on the other was because they knew that eventually the world would be destroyed once by water, by flood, and once by fire. So in their small thinking, they thought that if they could just put the history of God because they, you see, there's this persistence, this desire for persistence of knowledge, good and bad. And they wanted to pass down the things that they learned from their parents and from God interacting with them from this degree of separation. And they just went about it the wrong way. But you see that everybody has been pursuing, there's been a hole in man's heart for God ever since Adam and Eve sinned. Because the hole used to be filled, but now the hole is really the nakedness of human beings since then. So verse 2 in chapter 4, verse 1, she says, With the help of the Lord, so she's still giving God credit for something here, which is good, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to her, his brother Abel. Now you know the story of Cain and Abel, and that's where we're going here. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought what? Fat portions, which means great portions, honor, honorable portions, if you will, of some of the firstborn of his flock. I don't have to go into all of that. You see the prophetic implications there. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now he's not only angry, but he's probably feeling sorry for himself too. Genesis 4 and verse 6. So the Lord is still having a relationship with his people, and he's looking at Cain, and of course he sees this. So he says to Cain, Cain, why are you angry? So why is your face so downcast? If, now, this is some instruction he gives him. If you, underline you, this means choice. Cain, if you choose to do what is right, will you not be accepted? You see, getting along with God is really not that difficult. And if you're a Christian, when you and I, as Christians, have problems getting along with the Lord, it's because we're being more Cainish than Abelish. Think about that. I have discovered that, you know, that when I resist God, He has no problem resisting me. And frankly, I lose. And you do too. But He does it out of love. You see, He's not talking out of anger to Cain here. He's asking Cain, I want you to examine the way you're feeling, Cain. Examine yourself. Why are you angry? So he says here, if you do not, if you do right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is not right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to devour you, Cain. It desires to devour you. But he says again, you, and you must underline that, you must master it. Have you ever wondered why God allows sin to affect us all the time and all the thoughts that we have and all the things that we don't do, like Paul said, that we don't do and we, we, we don't want to do and we do and all the things that we need to do the, that we don't do? That's no surprise. What I don't want you to do is feel ultra guilty about it either. 
I want you to understand that God is saying to us, Mike, or whomever your name, put your name in here. Why are you so angry at me, Mike? Because I've been angry at the Lord before. Anybody, anybody going to get a witness on that one? He says, why? He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And I'm learning more and more and more that the more I map into God's plan, the easier it is to live with him. It's very simple. God is very simple and easy to get along with. And I, it is up to me to master sin. That's why he hasn't taken us home. That's why Satan is still allowed to have at us. Then the Lord said to Cain in verse 6, I'm sorry, uh, verse 8, now Cain and his brother Abel, let's go out, Cain said to his brother Abel, ah, you think, you think Cain listened to God? No, he didn't. Let's go out to the field. Hey, let's go out for a field trip, brother. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and Abel killed him. Now we have the first murder. You see, there was a death sentence, but it wasn't this. The death sentence was eternal separation from God which hasn't happened yet because Adam and Eve and their progeny still had a relationship with God. When hell is populated, the most tormenting thing in hell will be the fact that God's Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit, there will be no hope and there will be no communication with God in hell. That's the torment. Do you understand that? That's what you should be telling people who are Christians. That's what you should be telling people who are not Christians, who don't understand this metaphor or this thing called hell. And you know what? If everybody has hope, and I've discussed that with my sons and my wife, and we talk about hope. Hope. Everybody has hope. Mr. Obama was elected because of hope. That's great. There are people who survived the Holocaust because of hope. But unfortunately, there are people who didn't survive the Holocaust, right? Over six million did not survive the Holocaust. Did, did any of them not have hope? No. Probably all of them had hope until hope proved useless. Do you understand that? It's okay to have hope. But the thing is, is to have hope against hope, which means absolutely nothing if it doesn't map into the reality. And the reality of hell is that when finally someone has no hope, absolutely no hope, they go insane. Take a look at Satan. Does Satan have any hope? Did one-third of the angels that he took with him that decided... Because sin was crouching at their door and they did not master it, who went with him. Do they have any hope? Do you ever wonder why they still disobey and they are still evil and nasty and they want to destroy everything God creates? Because they think that the only way they can get out is if they defeat God. That's the only way out. So that's the only quote-unquote hope they have. Do you think it's going to work? They know scripture, God says, and, and they tremble, do we? And they know they have no hope. But until you are locked away in hell, there's even a little inkling of hope, even for Satan. That's how serious it is. Genesis 4 and verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He says, I don't know. I have, I have killed him. And you know the rest of the story. I want you to go down to chapter 4 and verse 17. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then what? Building a city. And he named it after his son Enoch. By the way, this is very prophetic. Anybody ever hear of a man named Nimrod? What was one of his claims to fame? Anybody? Babylon. The Tower of Babylon. He built the first real big city. Was Nimrod a good guy? No. By the way, did you ever hear of a city called Nineveh? Did you know he built that too? He built that too, and I believe he built Sodom. 
I know he built Nineveh and I know he built Babylon. Every one of these cities in scripture is evil and destined, if it's not already destroyed, will be destroyed. Well, look back in here. When they sin, all of a sudden they want to build a city. Why does man want to build cities? Because they want a power base because they are now going to work on saving themselves. And that's when they build religion. That's when they amass people to them. And that's when you come up with guys like Nimrod, who was a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord. He taught people how to hunt with leopards. And he was able to provide for a lot of people because of that. And he was able to build a city because people who want things will come to the city and be provided for. Get the picture? So he builds this tower, and he himself and his wife Semiramis and their son Tammuz, which I'm not going to get into here, but they build the first real worldwide religion. But do you see here it starts from Cain building a city? Do you see Cain is building a city? Important to remember is that there is a layer of separation from God, but they still have a relationship with God, but now they're going to try to find their own way back to the tree of life. That's what they're trying to do. Abel's offering, remember what it said Abel was offering? Abel was given the offering that God had specified. Cain did not. The blood sacrifice of an animal was ordained in Eden. We talked about that. And the concept of, a, of the blood of a lamb permeates scripture. You know that. And John the Baptist in John chapter 1 and verse 29 says, Look, when he sees Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that amazing? It all started in Genesis. That's what I'm trying to show you. At this juncture, Genesis now in chapter 5, which we're not going to get into here, goes into a genealogy. And in my class, we'll follow up on some of that. But I want you to get this basic thing out of it. So we have seen in Scripture that the book of Genesis has provided a solid introduction to this. And if you haven't seen it, please study Genesis when you do study, and you'll see it. A solid introduction to the triune God, Elohim, the perfect physical creation, a special area called Eden and the garden within it. The fact that Eden and this garden were in heaven before the throne of God until Lucifer sinned and sullied it. What this area of Eden and this garden are about is as important as, and is going to be restored as part of prophecy, as important as any piece of prophecy you know. It will be restored eventually. Uh, it was restored from heaven to earth, and then it went underground, if you will, as we talked about. But there were two trees in that creation, in that garden. One of them has been put away. The other is coming back because it has not been touched yet by man. The first humans and through their agreeing to sin are cut off from the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life, the beginning of a semi-separated life from God. The new life without special covering of God. Remember, they knew they were naked and they lay with their wives and they have sons and daughters and they teach them, but you notice that it isn't all accurate after that. And then they try to restore themselves by coagulating into cities and building their own religions and building their own relationships, all of course with Satan's influence. And you can see how Satan's influence and the human nature does not do well. Travis, can you put that slide up? We've got about two minutes left here. I, I hope you see, and, and maybe you haven't seen, but you do see, that what I've gone over here in just about 40 minutes is there's a lot of, a lot of understanding that you can glean from Genesis. And we haven't even gotten into the real meat of Genesis where we get into, into, into the beginning of the Jewish people, into the beginning of, of the call of Abraham. There's a lot of prophecy in that. We're going to talk about that a lot in my class. But I want you to see the validity of, of, of understanding more and more of the economy of God. You see this slide here? <clears throat> I just want to introduce you in the last couple of minutes to the dispensations of the Bible. I got this out of, out of a good study Bible. You should get a good study Bible if you don't have one. What we talked about here is, there is there's the age of innocence, the age of consciousness, or conscience rather, 
human government. Then we get into Israel, the existence of Israel, and they are the promise and the law that God gave them, specifically. The law was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came. You see the cross up there? The law was fulfilled. The Jews don't realize that yet. They're punished, and they will be punished more as time progresses. We are in an age called the age of grace, the church age. That is an anomaly. By every account in Scripture in the Old Testament, that was not supposed to happen. And that's what you need to understand if, if you ever talk to a Jewish person, because even Daniel himself, when he was prophesying about what was coming, did not see that. He did not see that. And there's more to it than just my telling you that. Trust me, <laughs> there is. But I'm just telling you that he did not see that. That was a special age of grace, what I call a parenthesis in time. In the time, there is a 70-week judgment on Israel because of their disobeying. And of course, the end will be, the mankind himself will be judged. But in that, there are 69 weeks of judgment that have passed. You might have heard this if you've heard of the book of Daniel. If not, I suggest you study it if you want to. It's good stuff. And then there's this parenthesis in time, which begins with Jesus Christ coming and resurrecting. When does it end? When does the church age end? Anybody know? Anybody else? The rapture. That's when the church age ends. And what happens right on the heels of the rapture? Tribulation. That's when the 70th week of judgment starts. And, that's, and then this, the 70, you see where it says seven years in that thin column right there? That's the tribulation. And that's in two parts. The first half is the tribulation, which is three and a half years. The Antichrist comes. And then the great tribulation, where three and a half years, the Antichrist moves into the temple, which will be rebuilt at that time in, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And he will say, I am your Messiah, Jews. I am your God, everybody else. I am the alien that created you, everybody who believes alien put us here. Those of you who believe in evolution, you're wrong because I am the one who put you here. Everybody is going to believe in the Antichrist who's left. That's why we will be gone. And then the millennium, which is a thousand years where God does his promise. The kingdom specifically was promised in the line of David for the Jew. And the Jew will have his kingdom for a thousand years. And after that, then we saw, we saw in Revelation, everything is bundled up and handed up to God for eternity after the battle of Armageddon. And it all goes back into the whiteness of eternity. And this, and this, I believe, will be put in some kind of museum for all of eternity. Because this documents a 6,000 year, if you will, subset of eternity. This is going to be the most important document in eternity after, after who knows what God has planned for that. So I want you to look at that. I want you to please look at Genesis. I know it's a lot of detail and not a lot of people are used to detail like this. But look at Genesis with a new light and have a great week.